And uh, many of you, if you've had children, there is a book that you counted on. And it is called, What to Expect. What? When You're Expecting. Yes. That book was written and put out in 1984 and has become sort of the Bible of expectant mothers. Expectant mothers have come to rely on that book to know what to expect when they're expecting. And it's helped many a mother and father through their, their very um, interesting and trying times of pregnancy. And that book was written by a lady named Heidi Murkoff, and she collaborated with her mother, who was a journalist, and her daughter, who was a nurse, to put together uh, something that would just help expectant mothers know what to expect. And knowing what to expect is very helpful. Heidi uh, Murkoff says that her motivation for writing the book was a personal quest for reassuring information during her first year of pregnancy. So she was looking for uh, an understanding of, of what it's going to be like and what, what should I know, how, the, how is this going to go down. And it is helpful to know and have information uh, about what to expect. And in our text today, that's sort of what we're going to be looking at. The title of the message is life with Jesus, and you could subtitle that what to expect in and with Jesus, living your life with Jesus. As Jesus calls us to follow him, he gives us some insight and information of what that's like. And it's important to know what to expect because, one, sometimes people, when they begin to follow Jesus, are very surprised about the things that occur and the things that happen and maybe even shocked if they're a new believer and are not understanding of what to expect. And then it's also good to know as believers, it's good to know um, sort of what is a good gauge and a measurement of how my walk is going and if I am walking correctly and if I'm, I am doing the things according to the word of God. And so we can use the expectations given in the Bible to clearly give us an indication of if we are walking with the Lord or maybe some cultural elements have infiltrated our life to the extent where, where culture is more dictating to us how we should walk with Jesus, how we should live with Jesus. So if you're taking notes this morning for particular things, this is not an exhaustive list of what to expect, but it's a very good list and a very good way to understand what to expect when we walk with Jesus. So number one, if you're taking notes, it's callings. Number two, it's healings. Number three, blessings. And number four, warnings. That's what we're going to find in our text this morning. So let's take a look at chapter, 12, uh, chapter 6, verse 12, and we'll start working our way through there. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve whom Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James, and John, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. And so, as we journey with Jesus, we find this initial thing that happens is there are callings. In other words, being near and around Jesus 
will bring a person to the awareness that being a Christian and following Jesus is not a passive spectator activity. It is something where people will feel called and properly a person should feel some sort of calling or some sort of initiation to action. It's not normal or it is incorrect to be comfortable in a passive observance of the things that are going on in the Christian life and the things that happen in the Bible. So when one, say, goes to church and involves himself in a fellowship, there will be a sense, especially if the Word of God is being taught and preached, and the Holy Spirit is working within that congregation, there will be a sense of a call. There will be a sense of a duty. There will be a sense of of action, and if there's not, and if one is comfortable watching other people fulfill their calling, then there's something wrong there. So let's look at at this section of Scripture in a little more detail. In verse 12, as this narrative continues, so we're sort of jumping in as there's things happening. We're in the the middle of these events happening in Jesus' life. That's why it says, now it came to pass. And so there's this continual action in the narrative of Jesus. And it says, in those days. And I find that fascinating because this was in the days where we just left off. If you just look at the preceding verse in your Bible, there was persecution that was heating up. Where it says that the Pharisees and the scribes were filled with what? Check it out. Look at it. Rage. So they weren't just half filled with rage. They were filled with rage at Jesus. And why? Why were they filled with rage? Because he was working on healing people on the Sabbath. And so one might think that when people are upset with you or when there are problems and difficulties, that maybe it's better to chill out. Maybe it's better to ease off. Maybe it's better to watch and step back. But instead, Jesus put the pedal to the metal. He did not stop. He did not see opposition and difficulty as a reason to stop. He understood that it was a reason to keep going because it meant he was being effective. It meant that the forces of darkness of this age, of this world, were coming at him because he was being effective. The forces of darkness are not worried about people who sit on the bench. Not worried about people who are comfortable watching other people use their gifts. Forces of darkness are against those who take action. Those who get the Word of God and put feet on the Word of God. Who walk the Word of God out. And so these are days of tribulation for Jesus and the disciples. But Jesus himself knew that these were a fulfillment of the things that God had promised and laid out. And Jesus understood because he had a a biblical understanding of the world that the world would hate the things of God. So in those days, instead of quitting, retreating, retiring, taking a step back, putting the brakes on, putting it in cruise control. Instead, he went out. 
He, he went forward. And where did he go? He went to a mountain to do what? To battle. It doesn't say battle. It says what? Pray. Praying is doing battle. So what did Jesus do when things heated up? He prayed. Why? He's going to battle. This is how the soldier of Christ engages in activity and strengthens himself. This prayer and the application of prayer is to know that Satan cannot stop prayer. As we look at the armor of God, it, it says in, in Ephesians, it says, above all these things, pray. And what did he do? Because he's moving forward in the plan of God, because he's moving forward in being about the Father's business and fulfilling the very reason that he came. Because of all that, he went to pray. And how did he pray? He prayed alone, and he prayed by himself. So, of course, there are times and there should be times where congregations get together to pray. That's a necessity and a must. But also, there is times that you and I should regularly be seeking the Lord in prayer. And the Bible says that we should always be praying. We should pray without what? Ceasing or stopping. That means that we, our lifestyle should be such where we're continually in communication with God. We're continually relinquishing our anxieties and stresses and frustrations and what have you to the Lord. And we're hearing from the Lord at the same time. And we're seeking Him for direction and understanding and his will in all things. And so that requires a servant of the Lord to be continually in touch with him, talking to him, interacting with him. Here, Jesus prayed all night by himself. So you think if Jesus prayed all night, is that a good maybe thing that we should be doing? Is that something that Jesus just needed to do? Or is it something that we all need to do as human beings in this world who are in the world but not of the world? So there's an intensity here, isn't there? It's not just long hours of prayer. That's not the point. The point is, is Jesus, who is nothing less than God, sought God the Father as God the Son in prayer for the task that was ahead of him. So he knew because of the calling that he had in his life that what was next, what was next was that he would enlist particular people that would follow him, learn from him in a very specific and purposeful way so that when he died and rose again and ascended to the Father, they would carry on his work. So is that something that's pretty important, who he would pick? Yes. It's vital who he's, he was going to pick. And it wasn't vital because he was going to have to seek the father to see who had the best resume in the group and to pick those who were the most qualified on paper. He had to seek the father because he wanted to make sure it was who the father had selected. And it is true that oftentimes our selections of things can be obscured by looking at the outward and not the inside. By looking at appearances and not seeking God as to what His choice is. So our prayer in seeking the will of God, get this, as people who sign up, which all believers should, who sign up to live and walk in God's will, that should be our desire, not to lead God, not to tell God what we want Him to do for us, 
but for those who simply see themselves as bondservants of Christ, therefore, we need to know what God wants us to do. And so much of the activity of a believer is seeking God to know what His will is. And oftentimes, our will can be very strong. Our feelings and emotions can fuel the strength of our own will. So when we come to the Lord in prayer, it's, it's seeking Him and sort of wrestling with Him to where we relinquish, where we surrender, and we say, Lord, Your will be done, whatever it is. If it's Your will, that's what I want. And it can be difficult, can it? It can be difficult to really want the Lord's will especially when our will is so strong and especially when our emotions and feelings can fuel our own will. And so our time in prayer is seeking God's will to say, Lord, I want your will. And Lord, I know that I can be blinded and obscured by my own feelings and my own desires. And so, Lord, I lay myself down. Lord, make it clear to me. Help me to understand. Lord, there seems like some options, some things that I might choose. It seems like a good thing. But as we find in the choosing of the disciples, it didn't have much to do with worldly credentials and worldly abilities and talents. It just simply had to do with those who God chose. So as Jesus was seeking the Father's will all night in prayer to choose those who He chose. We also need to be seeking the Lord that we would choose God's things that He already has for our life above our own things and above our own will and especially when our understanding about things can be obscured because we may look at the practical, pragmatic things and say, well, that seems like a good choice. But oftentimes, because our ways are not God's ways, and our thoughts are not God's thoughts, He will have things for us that are very different than we have for ourselves. And we should be rejoicing about that. Because His ways are better. And that the Bible says the ways of a man lead to destruction. When we're insistent on our own thing and our own way, when we're prayerless and hard-hearted towards the Lord, even as Christians, determined to do our thing and have our own way, God will often let us to teach us, to get us to a point where we will say, okay, Lord, my way is not working. My way is a disaster. And so Jesus is seeking the Lord for what he chooses. And he's doing that, we can say, intensely. Doesn't necessarily say that, but he's doing it all night. And then in verse 13, you notice, as he emerges from that, there's a confidence there. Because it says, when it was day, then he did something. So the prayer gave him the confidence in his heart that as he now was going to move forward with something, he had the confidence that he was moving forward in the Father's will. And so he was ready to act. And as we see this and look at this, before I move on, just this is how we live our life and make decisions. And when we seek the Lord in this way, truly wanting His heart and will for our life, then we can walk in confidence in Him. God doesn't want us to be wishy-washy. He doesn't want us to be double-minded. And so... As we arise from prayer, whatever that may be, 
and the Lord has put in our heart what His will is, we, we know and, and now we're set and we say, okay, now I can go in the confidence of the Lord. Now I'm walking in the Lord. And by the way, that's the only way we can have confidence is to be confident that we're walking in the plan and will of the Lord. So day comes up and he called his disciples to himself. So he, he just basically brings them to where he can see them because remember he was by himself praying all night. And this, uh, when it says disciples, these are just a large group of people that are following him around the area of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. They're a large group of people that are following him around. And so all these people come to him and from them he chose 12. Why did God choose these particular 12? Even Judas. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus was praying all night and the Father revealed who specifically he should pick. And those people that he picked, many of them gave Jesus a hard time. Most of them were not the people that, from a worldly standpoint, would be chosen because of their particular excellence or skill or education or ability. So we see that God doesn't choose people based on that. He chooses people based on His sovereign knowledge. Much of it we don't even know. We don't understand. Why did He pick these particular people? We don't know. But He did. And he even picked one that he knew would be a traitor to him. But Jesus, as he's picking, and think about that, Jesus, as he's picking Judas Iscariot, he knew that he would betray him. But he still had the confidence to move forward because he knew that it was in the Father's sovereign will to pick one that would rebel against him. That's amazing. Because sometimes we can make decisions as believers, surrender to God's will, and it seems like I made a terrible decision. But what we see here, did Jesus make a terrible decision? He made a decision that was perfectly in line with God's will. And do you, do you see how important it is to be confident that the decisions that we make are in the will of God? Because if, it's, if it begins to look different than what we thought it was going to be, if it looks different, we still have the confidence that that is the way it was supposed to be. So as he chooses the 12 out of this larger group of people. We now begin to understand that to be near to Jesus is to feel a calling, to feel a need or a desire to do something, to be, say, in a fellowship, in a church where there, the Word of God is being taught. There will be an expectation that we should have, that there should be some sort of a pressure that we feel inside of us to do something. There should be some stirring of our heart to do something. And that is because God has called everyone to be in the service of Him. Now you may say, well, I'm, I don't even believe in Jesus. I'm not even a Christian. I hope you don't say that today. And you can take care of that before we finish here. But you will still feel a call. You will feel a call that may feel like conviction. You'll feel a call, a need to be right with God. If you're not a Christian and 
you go to a church where the Bible is being taught, you should feel a call to Him. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit drawing you to Christ. And I will tell you, do not resist that. Because when you resist the Holy Spirit who is bringing you to Christ, drawing you to Christ might be a good word, a feeling of drawing towards Him. If you resist that, that's what's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is the one and only unforgivable sin. What does that mean? That means there's only one way that any believer ever comes to faith in Christ. Only one way, and that's because the Holy Spirit draws them. And if you say to the Holy Spirit who is drawing you through inclinations of your heart, through conviction of your heart, things like that, and you say, no, get out of here. Get away. I don't want to have anything to do with you. If you keep ignoring that and resisting that, there's no other way for you to be saved. Because it is the Holy Spirit that drives us to Christ. And so if you're not a believer and you come to a church, you should not feel comfortable. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, that seems weird because I've gone to a lot of churches and I feel very comfortable there as a non-believer. People did not feel comfortable around Christ as unbelievers. The tax collectors were around him and the prostitutes were around him, but it was because of his love for him that was drawing them into a relationship with him. And so when one understands their true condition before God without Christ, one should not feel comfortable. One should feel convicted, a pressure in their heart uh, that they have a need to come to Him. So remember, we're talking about expectations. That should be your expectation. That when you're around Jesus, maybe it's the love of Christ that draws you. Maybe the Holy Spirit is bringing to your awareness of the love of Christ to your heart, and that's drawing you to Christ. That's good. Maybe for some others, the realization of their sin and guilt and shame that they have not been able to find an answer or relief for. Maybe that's what's drawing them to Christ. But here's the point. We should expect when we open our Bibles and invite the Holy Spirit in, we should expect some calling. If you're a believer, you should expect in your heart to feel a desire to do something with that faith that's in your heart. And that is the first expectation that we'll look at. The second expectation of life with Jesus. It's healings. It's seeing God work to bring health spiritually to people. This is why many people answer the calling. Follow this. When one who is not well spiritually, which all are not well until they come and receive the wellness from Jesus Christ and He heals us. But when one heals spiritually a person and when they experience the freedom in Christ, the relief of the guilt and the shame and the power of God, of His love in their life, and He begins to call that person then into service, it's because they've been healed and they want other people to be healed. 
It's because of what they've experienced. It drives them to share and want to share that experience with other people. So as as Jesus calls those particular 12, mind you, he called them to be a blessing for others. When we're called by God and all believers are into service, he calls us to be a blessing to other people. So in verse 17, it says, now he came down with them. So the group is with him. He stood on a level plain with a crowd of his disciples. So those are general followers, not necessarily the 12. It included the 12, but then there's also a larger group. So the disciples just means followers. And then it says, and then there's a great multitude of people. And they were from Judea, Jerusalem, from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits. And they were healed, and the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him, and he healed them all. So as we look at this, expectation then that to be with Jesus is to experience the power of Jesus working in people's lives to heal them. Now Jesus, his miracles and the miracles that the disciples did after that were primarily to give credence to his message, to demonstrate that he is God in the flesh, having power over sickness, disease, darkness, evil spirits, everything in the world, that he is all-powerful. So he he would teach, and then he would do these miracles to support his teaching, to authenticate that he truly is the Messiah. And never on earth before that time and to this day has there been anything like that. He was healing thousands. And he was healing all that came to him. And he was doing it primarily to demonstrate that he is God. But what we find here, and then the expectation that you and I, I should have as we follow Jesus as he calls us into service to stir up our gift and be active in our faith. And what does that mean to be active in our faith? Primarily, it means that we involve and interact with people, with our gifts, encouraging, helping, blessing, teaching, exhorting, evangelizing, whatever it is. But the ministry is people. And so you notice here, there's people. Jesus didn't sort of sit on top of the mountain and just pray. And that was it. Why? Why didn't he just do that? Because that's not what ministry is. Ministry is people. And that's why many people don't minister, because ministry is people. And because oftentimes people, like a bad dog, bite and people hurt and many times people stay away from ministering to people and would rather stay on a mountain in their room and pray with people and not get close to people and touch people and interact with people but that's not ministry let me just qualify that it can be ministry if one is unable to physically go out and do those things And that would be someone with an amazing intercession gift. And so somebody who's convalesced, somebody who's stuck because of their physical health 
in bed or a particular way. I believe God gives many of those. Those are the people that hold up the church. Have you ever seen Atlas holding up the world? Well, the intercessors, those who physically are unable, they're holding up the church in the world. But other than that, the ministry is about people. And so Jesus, He comes down. And he, he gets in the middle of the people. He's mixing up. They're all around him. And you might want to say they're mobbing him. They're grabbing him. Why? Because if you just touch him, the power will go out and you'll be healed. There's a message in that, isn't there? There's power in the name of Jesus. We should expect healing because that's what he came to do. And that may or may not mean physically, but I do believe that's not primary. The healing that we're looking at and what Jesus was demonstrating through physical examples was the ultimate healing and the greatest miracle that can happen is someone's healed from their sin. Jesus is the only one that can heal someone of their sins. And so we should expect, and this is why it is exciting to serve the Lord, because as we answer His call, we should expect to see people healed in the Lord. We should see fruit. We should see the life of God in us affect other people. And this is, for many including myself, this is the reward of ministry. That is the icing on the cake. I was going to say cherry, but I hate those cherries on top of desserts. I always spit those out. It is the icing on the cake. It is the reward. There's no greater joy. And may I say, as a human being on earth, that God would enlist you and me to heal the brokenhearted. In fact, Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, a couple chapters before, He said, this is why I've come. And He's quoting from Isaiah 61. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So this is exciting. So Jesus is telling us, as we answer the call in obedience to the Lord, then He will begin to use our life to heal people in many different ways. Primarily, we're talking spiritually, primarily. But we, we will have the words of eternal life. And I, I hope to God that you have had the privilege and experience of leading someone to Christ. There's nothing better on earth than leading another person to Christ. And to know that that person is going to be in heaven. And not only that, that a person has been transferred from an eternity in hell to an eternity in heaven. This is where it's at. This is what it's about. When church becomes something other than that, then it's not church. The church is to fulfill the Great Commission. Go, not sit, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them, like you with your Bibles on your laps, the Word of God and to obey the Word of God. That's the church. If that's not happening in a church, 
That's not a church. And so we should have expectation. Our church, our fellowship, we should expect that God has chosen us to be here at a particular time, at a particular place, for a particular reason. And we should expect God to work miracles in our midst. Point number three. We should expect blessings. We should expect blessings. And Jesus straight up tells his disciples, and now he sort of hones in this message more specifically to the 12, because it would be the 12 that would go out after. And so he lifted up his eyes, it says in verse 20, toward his disciples. And he said, and, and when he's saying that, so now he's teaching. So you could put a subtopic on blessings that we should also expect teaching. We should always also expect teaching. So Jesus is teaching, and he said, and this might sound familiar to you, because it's similar to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Is this the same thing? First of all, to me it doesn't really matter. I don't think it's the same thing. It's a little, little different, similar but different. And it seems like this is a, not the Sermon on the Mount, but the Sermon on the Plain. So I think it's a little different, but the point is the content is, is the same. But he, what he's doing is, he's saying, you should expect to be blessed. So that's amazing. Because I think sometimes as believers, we expect everything to go wrong. As believers, we have a, an attitude that, well, I'm, I'll follow Jesus with the stiff upper lip. I'll suck it up. I'll be tough, but I know everything's going to be terrible. Jesus is saying we should expect blessings. Now, the, the problem when I say that, it almost, I feel a little cringy when I'm saying that because of the incorrect teaching in regards to that. The incorrect prosperity gospel type of teaching that demands from God and sort of shakes him into blessing them hoping some change will fall out of his pocket. But he's straight out. So we, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And we don't want to be... Forgive me if your name's Nancy. I know we have a couple of Nancys here. You don't want to be a negative Nancy or a negative Norm or whatever. And it's funny because the Nancys we have are the most positive people so but we don't want to want to walk around with the sorry Nancy but we don't want to walk around with that lack of confidence and just thinking man it's just a matter of time before something terrible happens Jesus straight out tells his disciples look at the first word in this sermon he said what blessed he says blessed so what he's saying is, look, my followers, as my Father in Heaven treats me, I treat my followers well, good. Just like a parent, a good parent with their child would want the best for them. Satan has done a just a good job at distorting the true nature of God to the world. God is a God who wants to bless us because He loves us. He delights in blessing us. The problem is, this is why this is going to be so powerful. The problem is, do we understand what He means when He says that? Because you may be saying, well, my life doesn't look 
too blessed right now. But do you understand what he's saying? You may not realize how blessed your life really is. So he says, he says, blessed are the poor. So imagine this audience, what? What are you talking about? Because similar to our culture in the Roman Empire, it was all about power and wealth and position and popularity and politics were the way that you got to have those things in many cases. And Jesus straight out comes. He says, you know what? Blessed. That word blessed could be just translated happy. And it's interesting because really, if you really dissect it, not many people that have the world, worldly wealth and goods and things of the world are not too happy people. So he says, he says to this crowd, blessed are, are you poor, are the poor. And he says, the reason why, so here's the reason, yours is the kingdom of God. So what he's saying is there's something different. You're looking at it from a different way. You're looking at the world and saying, how can my life in this world be good and how can it be the way I want it to be and successful and comfortable and all that? How can one enjoy the things of this world? And the way that a worldly person thinks that they get to enjoy the things of the world is through money. It's Money is how one in the world is able to buy the things that the world offers. So the world has offerings. And to get those offerings, you have money and you pay for those things. And those things that you may be able to buy and purchase can buy and purchase for you outward things. Car, house, comfort, at least worldly comfort, food, partying, those things. But here's the thing you have to think about. Do those things, are, is, do they have the ability to go and penetrate into a person's soul so that a person's soul would be happy because of those things? And the answer is no. Because if I were to receive a large portion of money right now and go and buy something my head could imagine buying, my soul would not experience love. My soul will not experience true peace. In fact, whatever I bought might cause me to lose my peace because I have to sustain that thing that I had bought. It's not going to bring me joy. I'll, I'll be happy until that thing I get starts to have problems or gets a scratch on it or is not as perfect as when I just bought it, then what do I have to do? I have to get something else to get that same feeling. And then I'm on a perpetual cycle of getting things to make me feel happy and satisfied where at the end of the day, my soul is not being touched at all. And that's why Jesus tells us to come to Him. Where no matter what we have on the inside, He can bring to our soul all of our soul's desires. So He's saying you're happy when, and when you're poor. And what He's saying, he's not, it's not a blanket statement where it's good to be poor. What He's saying is that if what we have materialistically, in, if it in any way, shape, or form obscures our relationship with God, then it becomes an idol, and then it becomes something that distracts 
one's relationship with God, and then we're not experiencing the fullness of all God has for us. So all of our material things we have to keep in perspective to our relationship with God. And if any of those things get in the way of our relationship with God, we have to say bye-bye to them. We have to see that this material thing is not going to bless me. But if I keep it in the proper perspective, I can use it as a blessing. But my priority, and it is easier to prioritize the things of God in my life if I don't have a whole bunch of stuff. Man, the Bible does not have a lot of good things to say about being rich. And again, being rich in and of itself is not the problem. There are rich people in the Bible. Abraham, Job, Isaac, Joseph of Arimathea, Solomon. That in itself is not the problem. It's when those things take over our relationship with God. And the thing is, material things do have a draw and a power to them. And that's why the Bible generally speaks very negatively about just accumulating things, merely to accumulate them, because they have a potential to displace God in our life. So he continues with that thought. He said, Blessed are you who hunger now, The reason is because you will be filled. So primarily what this is talking about is the spiritual needs. So blessed are you poor. In Matthew it says poor in spirit, which means a recognition of our need for God. And now he says blessed are you who are hunger, who who hunger now. So Do you know what a gift it is if you have a hunger for God? Here he tells us that you're you're blessed, you're happy. If you have a hunger for God, he tells us that's how you'll be filled. You'll be filled not with material possessions. You'll be filled when you hunger for God because only he can satisfy you. So we should expect you're here this morning with your Bibles and your spiritual appetites, you should expect to be filled. That should be your expectation. He says then, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. In other words, that's a way of saying I'm not driven by this need to be entertained. And I'm able to keep things in perspective in this world, understanding that this world is what it is and it ends where it ends, not finding my joy in the world, but finding it in the Lord. That means that we can enjoy our life in the world if we're enjoying God as we live in the world. Again, the priority is our relationship with God. And then chapter, or chapter 6, verse 22, he says, Blessed are you when men hate you, and they exclude you, and revile you, and cast your name as evil, like despising you. Not for just any reason, but notice what it says, for the Son of Man's sake. So now here's sort of a, whoa, wait a second moment. I can kind of track about the materialism and keeping God first, but now you're actually telling me there's a blessing when because of my faith in God, my family members maybe, my friends maybe, people I grew up with, They may hate me. They may exclude me. Not want to have anything to do with me. Disown me. 
They may just have a disdaining look on their face, and they may even say that I'm evil. You know what's crazy? It's, it's not going to be being a Christian that's the problem. It's going to be people will see you and I as extremist fundamentalists who are bigoted, homophobic, and racist. That's what people hate us for. Not because we are that, which we know we're not, but because of Satan's way of portraying us that a Christian is an extremist fundamentalist who hates everybody and needs to be dismissed from our society. That's why people are going to hate you. Not because, oh, I'm a Christian. Because there are many who will say, oh, I'm a Christian too. Oh, you are. Why do you have a rainbow flag in your house? Oh, I'm a Christian. God loves everybody. And when you begin to discuss the need for repentance and that true love does not rejoice in iniquity but rejoices in the truth. And because of your love for people, you are unable to say certain things are okay because you love them and because you know they need to be healed and restored in Christ. You and I will be hated and reviled and we already are. It's already happening. And it's for the Son of Man's sake. But he says in verse 23, Rejoice in that day. Not only rejoice, leap for joy. Why? Your reward is great in heaven. When someone hates you, disowns you, casts you off, excludes you for the name of Christ. He says, your reward in heaven is great. And now he says, you're like the prophets. He says, in like manner, the fathers did to the prophets who they killed in the Old Testament because they preached and taught and explained and shared the word of God and they were killed. So Jesus is saying there should be an expectation of that. And when we expect that and know that, we understand that there's a real force of darkness against those who name the name of Christ and walk in the path of Christ. The world will hate you, but the world's only chance is that you don't surrender to the God of this age. The world's only chance, your friend, your loved one, their only chance is that you continue to walk in the light, not that you bow down to the darkness. If you truly love your loved one, you will walk in the light and pray that one day they will see the light that will set them free, Jesus Christ. Finally, verse 24, not only should we expect callings and expect healings, We should expect blessings, and now we should expect warnings. So in a church, we should expect to be warned. When we read the Bible, we'll be warned. And this is what Jesus does as we finish up. He says, woe, that's a warning. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. If you're rich in this world, what he's saying is that to the neglect of your relationship with God. So again, it's not just being rich. If you're rich, praise the Lord, thank God, but no, it's hard. None of us should be chomping at the bit to be rich knowing that it's difficult. And God does bless people even with the gift of having money, the gift of being able to make it and and have it and use it for God's glory. 
So it's not just, that's not the point of being rich. The point is to the neglect of God. And riches can and do have a tendency to draw a person away from God. You know what's interesting? There are 2,350 verses on money in the Bible. That's more than verses on faith and prayer combined. That's more than Jesus said about heaven and hell combined. And so that's, that's an issue. And the point is, where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be. So it's important to know. And I like the prayer in the Proverbs. Lord, give me enough money to where I don't have to steal and not too much where I forget about you. But if someone has the gift where they can handle money, that's a blessing. But just be careful. Use it appropriately. But no, most of us, we don't have it. So don't covet it. Don't want it. If you don't have the ability, it'll probably destroy you. So he says, woe to those who are rich, for they have received their consolation. What's their consolation? Their money. That's it. That's all you get. Enjoy it while you can, because if that's it, and that keeps you from the Lord, then you will die without Christ. He said, woe to those who are full. Or you shall hunger. You'll notice a pattern. He's going alongside of all those blessed attitudes. Now he's showing those attitudes which are not blessed. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And then woe to you who speak well of you, for so did the fathers, their fathers of the false prophets. So the false prophets in the Old Testament, everybody spoke well. What did the false prophets do? They said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. They spoke people into this casualness of their faith to adapt the things of the world and to have no fear of God, which led, led to no interest in God. They are false prophets. So those four things can be summed up in materialism, comfort, entertainment, and popularity. Those are maybe the four pillars of modern society. And he would say, woe to you who live according to and for those things, because that's your religion. That's what you worship. You worship those things. Those are your God. And just like those things that have an end in eternity, you will too, in your relationship and understanding of God, if you follow those things all the way to the grave. And so as we wrap these things up and we put these things all together, it's good to know now what we should expect. What we should expect in our walk with God and what we should expect in a church body. And I pray and I hope that we as a body of Christ would be in alignment with God's will. Most importantly, if you're not saved, you don't have a relationship with God today, God's inviting you into a relationship with Him. Odds are, if you're not in a relationship with God, you've put something of the world ahead of God, and that is your God. And you may not realize it, but that is what you worship. And may I tell you, the Lord wants to set you free from that and give you life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. It's amazing as we go through this, Lord, just how relative, pertinent, and meaningful this is in our day, even as it was written 2,000 years ago. We see that the things of this world don't change. We see that 
the heart of men over time. They don't change. It's all the same. And yet, Lord, you continue to invite us to you, Lord. You beckon us to come to you. And I pray that this morning. I pray that each one of us here this morning, whatever condition or however God may have spoke the word into our heart, I pray that we would respond. I pray, Lord, that we would expect you to bless, expect you to call us, expect you to warn us, and expect you to do amazing things through us. Let's all stand as we worship the Lord. We're going to have our prayer team up front if anybody would like prayer about anything. As we sing this last song, just feel free to come on up front. This morning, if you have asked the Lord into your heart or if you want to do that, I just encourage you to not leave before you take care of that. Just feel free to come up. They'd be happy to pray for you guys. If, if any of you have any pressing things on your heart, just things that are just really difficult and you're struggling with, they'll be up here to pray with you. God bless you guys. Let's have a great week in the Lord and let's worship the Lord now. God bless you guys.